0: this week on Making Contact.
1: flu is called the democratic disease because nobody's immune to it. Rich, poor, everyone can catch the flu. But actually it's not quite accurate. Everyone can catch the flu, but the people who are the most vulnerable to it are the people who are, for example, living in poor substandard accommodation, or they're overworked, or they're malnourished, or they've got poor access to healthcare. And those things, unfortunately, align with people who are the poorest in society. So socioeconomic status has a major impact, even today, in disease outbreaks. It undoubtedly will in this COVID-19 pandemic, and it certainly did in 1918.
0: I'm Monica Lopez, and this is Making Contact. Just over a century ago, humanity faced a deadly global pandemic, the Spanish flu. The Centers for Disease Control estimates that the disease killed at least 50 million people, and a third of the world's population was infected. By the time this show went to air, my hometown of Los Angeles was among 75% of the U.S. population, living under some kind of stay-at-home order to limit the spread of COVID-19. Handwashing and physical distancing are part of daily life now, as are grim tallies of the sick and the dead. And even though there have been tremendous advances in science, our methods for slowing the spread of this new coronavirus is pretty much the same as people who were avoiding the Spanish flu 100 years ago. Today, we'll look at what was going on socially and politically in 1918 and examine how the people who lived a century before us responded to the crisis of a global pandemic. There were important and encouraging lessons to be learned then about prevention and readiness, as there are today from COVID-19. In this program, we'll hear excerpts from a conversation with Laura Spinney, science journalist and the author of Pale Rider*, The Spanish Flu of 1918, and How It Changed the World. Spinney begins by explaining the trajectory of how the Spanish flu spread.
1: Um, flu pandemics do seem to have this characteristic pattern that they come in waves and that, that there is an, an initial herald wave. It's particularly cruel if you think about it because we, we kind of lulled into a sense of false security by that first wave and then it goes away and then the real thing hits. So, so the idea now is that a very virulent pandemic strain kind of emerged in the early months of 1918 through a background of the usual seasonal flu. And so it didn't seem so bad. It was kind of pushing through a background of milder flu. And perhaps at that stage, this new strain had not yet acquired the ability to transmit easily between human beings. Then something happens around the late spring, early summer, and the virus mutates, and it becomes highly transmissible amongst human beings. And then that pure pandemic strain comes back with a vengeance in the late summer. That's the idea. And there's good evidence for it in the sense that Uh, scientists sequenced the genome of the virus that caused the the pandemic strain from 1918. They sequenced it back in 2005. Um, And they have uh, samples from people who died of the spring wave and people who died of the autumn wave, and they can compare those sequences and they can see how they changed. One of the problems with the Spanish flu, as with any flu pandemic, is it doesn't really fit a nice linear narrative. The number of waves and the timings of the waves depended on where you were in the world and they were staggered within in the southern hemisphere with respect to the north so they came later in the south with respect to the north that's why we normally say that the pandemic lasted two to three years it's quite difficult to measure the end of the pandemic but two to three years Um, because those waves came later in the South. So if you're talking about the Northern Hemisphere, then we generally speak about three waves, which start with a a sort of mild one in the Northern Hemisphere spring of 1918 that wasn't that different from seasonal flu and caused the usual sort of uh, havoc, but nothing too dramatic, especially in a world that was at war. So it was kind of the least of their problems. And it went away later that spring, early that summer. And then you got the second wave, which was really the wave. This was the major wave of death. It was, it was so different from that first wave that people called it a, a different disease. They, they considered it was not the same the disease. Upted in the sort of tail end of August 1918, the, the most commonly accepted estimates suggest that 50 to 100 million people died in the world of the Spanish flu. And the vast majority of those deaths took place in the 13 weeks between the middle of September and the middle of December 1918. So this vicious second wave then retreats towards the tail end of the year. And then there's a sort of recrudescence in the early months of 1919, which we kind of refer to as the third wave. And that was intermediate in severity between the other two. There is a school of thought that that wasn't really a separate wave. It was kind of the tail end of the second wave with interruptions due to end of year holidays, Christmas and Hanukkah and so on, which meant that people's patterns of movement and, and collecting together changed. And so that changed the pattern of the of the wave and how it rolled out.
0: The consequences of losing at least 50 million lives to the Spanish flu over a few short years were catastrophic. Equally devastating was that adults in the prime of their lives
1: were very susceptible to the disease. So just a a preliminary note about COVID-19. Up to now, people have been saying that that it's the elderly and the uh, people with other conditions who are particularly vulnerable. But, But I think that's not all who's vulnerable. The people in the intensive care units are also, in some cases, much younger. However, Spanish flu very clearly differed from seasonal flus in that age profile respect. Most flus uh, are worse in the very young and the very old. So they have a kind of U-shaped mortality curve. And that one had uh, famously a W-shaped mortality curve, which means that uh, there was a middle-aged group of adults aged between 20 and 40 who were also particularly vulnerable. And in fact, the right-hand stroke of that W was lower than it is usually in a flu season, meaning that elderly people seem to have been slightly more protected in the pandemic than they were in a usual flu season. But there was a um a group of adults in the prime of life who were particularly vulnerable. And that's one of the reasons why this pandemic was so devastating to human communities, because it wiped out the productive members of those communities, the breadwinners, the pillars, the fathers, the mothers, Um, And at a time when there was really no safety net to speak of, even in wealthy countries, to catch those who were left behind, the elderly parents and the young children,
0: mainly. As with many public health concerns, there were other determining factors that raised or lowered a person's chances of dying from the Spanish flu. It wasn't limited to age.
1: flu is called the democratic disease because nobody's immune to it. Rich, poor, everyone can catch the flu. But actually, it's not quite accurate. Everyone can catch the flu. But the people who are the most vulnerable to it are the people who are, for example, living in Poor substandard accommodation where they're densely packed and uh, maybe the living arrangements are not well ventilated, or they're overworked, or they're malnourished, or they've got poor access to healthcare, or uh, they have underlying conditions. And those things unfortunately align with people who are the poorest in society, generally the people at the bottom of the social ladder. So, socioeconomic status has a major impact even today in in uh, disease outbreaks it undoubtedly will in this covid-19 pandemic and uh, it certainly did in 1918 so if i was to give you the example of india which was a british colony at the time 18 18 million indians died we estimate in the spanish flu which is the equivalent of the entire death toll of the first world war and it highlighted, when the pandemic struck India, it highlighted really how pathetic the uh, healthcare provisions were of the colonial authorities for the indigenous population. Um, I mean, they weren't brilliant for the, for the white colonialists either, and a lot of doctors were away at the front, but there, were, there was practically nothing for Indians. And that became blatantly clear. Um, And in fact, interestingly, the people who sort of stepped into the breach because there were no doctors and nurses to look after the people who were suffering in such large numbers, um, especially in outlying areas, were the people who had already organized themselves to some extent in the fight for independence. So India has a very caste ridden society, but these were people who had managed to reach out of their own classes and castes to each other in order to fight in the name of independence. And because they'd managed to do that, they also managed to coordinate themselves to help in the public health effort. Now, perhaps what they did didn't make that much difference because they were no better off than doctors at the time in terms of treating this disease, but it had a major social impact, what they did, and long-term consequences, interestingly, for the fight uh, for independence.
0: You're listening to Lessons from the Spanish Flu on Making Contact and Laura Spinney, science journalist and author of Pale Rider, the Spanish Flu of 1918 and How It Changed the World. A very special thanks to KPFA Radio and Sasha Lilly for allowing us to broadcast this edited interview. Find a link to the original interview on our website at radioproject.org. That's radioproject.org. Making Contact is offered for free to radio stations across the U.S. and around the world. Check out our podcast and follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Our handle is Making_Contact. underscore contact. Coming up, science journalist Laura Spinney describes how this massive public health crisis of the Spanish flu forced countries to grapple with systemic inequality and social unrest and eventually led to universal health care.
1: So I mentioned earlier this socioeconomic effect um, and people weren't blind to it. They were seeing that, you know, the poorer and the working classes were the ones who were taking the brunt of it. Just to give you a a nice little vivid detail, um, I think, is uh, the fact that in Paris, where I live, one in four women who died of the Spanish flu was a maid. And, And for a long time, just also to speak to that socioeconomic point. Um, epidemiologists were puzzled by their observation that one of the highest death rates in the capital, the French capital, Paris, was in some of the wealthiest districts until they realized that the people dying there weren't the owners of the of those addresses. They were the maids um, and the servants who were living in the chilly Chambre de Bonne at the tops of the houses. So uh, that socioeconomic effect was very visible and i mean the, the turbulence was there already the class tensions were there there is no doubt about that you know this was the time of the of the russian revolutions just um earlier a few years earlier and the russian civil war and it, it was most definitely in the air, even in the United States. It was a red scare around 1921. But you have, I think, the Spanish flu feeding into that and exacerbating it in many parts of the world, even in Switzerland, well organized Switzerland, because in the uh, Swiss uh, military, it was noticed that it was the men in the ranks who were falling sick in droves and not the officers. And, you know, it just kind of fed a general disgruntlement and Switzerland came very close to, um, to revolution in the autumn of, of 1918, though it managed to avoid it.
0: Laura Spinney explains that in the early 1900s, people expressed their long-held beliefs about race and class much more openly, and that contributed to how the pandemic affected different populations
1: it's not very widely recognized, perhaps, that the whole um, idea of eugenics, which was so discredited after the Nazis took it up in the 1930s, was actually quite a mainstream idea in at uh, the time of the First World War and the Spanish flu. So in a lot of uh, countries, um, there was an idea that if if the lower classes caught these um, infectious diseases and died in large numbers, it was something to do with them, with their sort of lack of fibre and their lack of—they were just poorer poor quality human beings who hadn't the drive to succeed in life and to have a better quality of life in general. One of the reasons the the British were so slack in India, and they weren't—I mean, they weren't the only ones. Um, was that they felt it was something you know that, that that the the native indians were to some extent responsible for their own misery and there was nothing you could do about it and public health meant containing those diseases in the underclasses and not letting them spread to the elites that was that was very much the mainstream mentality then and i think what the pandemic showed in 1918 in no uncertain terms was that you you could not blame an individual for catching a disease or treat them, him or her, in isolation. It, it was a social problem and it had to be treated at the level of the society, at the level of a population. And so um, although the idea of kind of socialized medicine, universal health care that's available to everybody, had been floated um, you know, from the late 19th century, particularly in Germany. Germany was a pioneer in this. Um, nothing had really come of it so far. And, th- and that's not... Um, surprising given that it takes time and a great deal of effort to put such a system in place i mean first of all you have to work out how you're going to pay for it the germans had a sort of national insurance scheme from the late 19th century which pretty much lives on today in the, in the in the method that it uses to pay for healthcare. um and uh so y- you have to do that first and then you have to reorganize the way you you uh dis- you 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 distribute health care, because um, in the 19th century, doctors were generally either self-employed or employed by charities um, or religious institutions. They were not organized in a sort of uh, national, nationwide system with uh, community, district, provincial levels as they are very much more today. So it's a massive task to put in the system. And what I argue in my book is simply that the pandemic gave it a huge stimulus because it was it, it was realized that you had to tackle this as soon as it happened and you had to c- tackle it across the board. Um, so I think every nation, a uh, big nation anywhere that was capable of doing such a thing, realized that and you see starting in the 1920s, the kind of consolidation and reorganization of healthcare systems everywhere. But different countries took different approaches to particularly the way they paid for it. So in, um, in, the, in Europe, many nations um, following uh, the Russian model sort of went the way of national insurance schemes and you pay for it indirectly through your taxes, um, but the care is free at the point of delivery. Whereas in the States, uh, a different model was pursued um, has to be said partly because of fear of uh, communism and, and too much state intervention, uh, where it would be paid for instead by employer-based insurance schemes. And those kind of proliferated uh, through the 1930s. But in a way, at the time, even though they were paying for it by different methods, the underlying concept was the same, which was to expand access to healthcare care and, and make it far more Organized in a nationwide sense and uh, accessible to all or to as many as possible.
0: Spinney explains that the Spanish flu pandemic of 1918 receded gradually over time with further
1: outbreaks of milder disease. So every strain of seasonal flu that is now circulating in the world started as a pandemic strain. It started as a new strain in human beings that was very virulent because it hadn't yet encountered us as a host. And then because it's in the flu's, uh, so to speak, evolutionary interest to moderate its virulence over time, because it wants to keep us alive us, its host in order to spread it far and wide, it it gradually evolves over time to become more um, milder, less virulent, and uh, and so we kind of live in it, live with it in a more of a harmonious equilibrium with these occasional outbreaks of seasonal flu. So that's what you see. That's why a pandemic never really ends. It just recedes gradually as the virus um, uh, mutates, evolves and becomes less virulent. And that's why the shape of a pandemic or an epidemic is is the, the kind of bell curve. So you see the pandemic coming on gradually, it doesn't have a kind of concrete start either. It comes on as it emerges in the world and becomes transmissible between human beings it peaks um uh well it kind of increases exponentially to start with because as it emerges it encounters this completely immunologically naive population which is us um and it's surrounded by susceptible hosts so it grows very quickly to begin with and then either as people die or as they gain immunity because they recover uh the pool of susceptible hosts shrinks and so you see the the pandemic uh, peaking, levelling off, receding. And then at the same time, you've got the the virus uh, begins to mutate and become more benign. And so it's still there uh, circulating for a long time after, but it's getting um, gradually milder. So the flu recedes around 1920, 21, depending on where you were in the world. But then there's a kind of wave of, um, I suppose we might call it post-viral fatigue, um, uh, you know, it had been a very vicious flu and the people who recovered from it went through very often, um, at least according to anecdotal and medical reports, a kind of phase of fatigue and lassitude and, and even depression. Um, and in some parts of the world, there are even there's even evidence that that affected the economy, that, you know, so many people were kind of knocked out um, for a time that the, the economy actually suffered again.
0: When the flu finally receded, it left behind a devastating loss of life and livelihood. Assessing that loss proved to be very difficult.
1: The figure that is generally given for Spanish flu case fatality rate, i.e. the proportion of people who fall sick with it who go on to die, is around 2%, 2 2.5%. That's incredibly hazy because there was no uh, reliable diagnostic tests at the time. So we really don't know the exact numbers of who got sick. It's always easier to calculate the number of dead because it's hard to ignore them. But who is sick, who is staying at home and not declaring their sickness, perhaps because it's mild, or who is not suffering from flu, but some other respiratory infection is much harder to get at. And uh, retrospectively, obviously, it makes it even harder. So that end of the comparison, the 1918 end is, is a moving target. Um, and it's often pointed out to me, why do you say that the CFR, case fatality rate for 1918, why do you repeat this figure of 2.5% when we now work with uh, 50 million at least dead and, and over um, an estimated 500 million cases in the world, which would give you a CFR of 10%. And if it's 100 million dead, that's 20%. I mean, I think both those numbers are possible, but the the higher up you go towards global estimates rather than kind of city or country estimates, the vaguer you get and the, and the harder it is to rely on those figures because they were, for, for one reason alone, and there are many others, which is that they were counted differently in different countries. So obviously it's useful to pool those numbers in order to get a sense of the global impact of that pandemic. But when you want to calculate things like lethality, it's very difficult to use those figures. So that's why it's hard to say whether it was 2.5%, 10%, 20%. But 2.5%, there's good there's good reasons for working with that figure again, um, you know, with all the caveats that it's uncertain, because it's drawn from places where the data was relatively well collected. Um so uh let's say it's 2.5%. Now moving on to COVID-19. Um, on the original chinese data i think it was last week the who announced a provisional cfr of 3.4 percent now obviously that is alarmingly high if it's true but we can't rely on that either because many mild cases again may have gone unreported there may have been for example a situation where The hospitals in uh, Wuhan were just overrun and could only take the most severe cases, so they weren't seeing the less bad ones. Um, It's not to be taken as a final figure by any means. And uh, the number of experts that I've spoken to, epidemiologists, experts in um, infectious diseases and so on, they say that they believe it will settle somewhere around 1% to 2%. Which is still very high the 0.1 the 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 cfr that is given as typical of flu pandemics is around 0.1 so one to two percent is high and it means that this is serious stuff we need to take it seriously at the same time people have to understand what what hides behind these numbers we're in a really interesting period now because um because we're in this period where we have no vaccine And so our best hopes are what are collectively known as social distancing measures. That's things like quarantine, isolation, um, masks, hand washing, you know, self-isolation, all these things which essentially work by keeping the sick and the healthy apart and so slowing the spread of the disease. Um, And... uh, Uh, those do not change really very much over time they're the same techniques that were being used in 1918 so I think that when you talk about social distancing then you know the historical parallels do become valid Um, and I think another lesson we've met we've we've learned from 1918 on is that Um, imposing uh, health measures doesn't work, um, at least not in our um, relatively free societies. And and not, you know, I mean, it it worked in China, they pulled it off. But I'd have to say, from what I've been reading, it was a fairly close run thing. I mean, imagine if you had 60 million people under lockdown, and you had a rebellion, that would be quite hard to contain. There were riots in the SARS outbreak in China, um, 18 years ago, um, when the government was very very less transparent with information than it was this time um and even this time though people broadly complied uh there was a lot of frustration expressed on social media in china uh, especially after the death of the so-called whistleblower doctor um there was huge outrage expressed so i think it was a gamble even on the part of the chinese government um our governments and governments in general and the WHO know that it's far better if people comply voluntarily with uh, public health measures. Um, and uh, But for that to happen, they need to be well informed. They need to understand the level of the threat they're facing. Um, and they have to trust the authorities to be telling them to do the right thing. They have to trust them to be acting in their collective interest.
0: Epidemiologists had been on the lookout for coronavirus outbreaks. In October of 2019, public health workers and government leaders even took part in a fictional coronavirus pandemic simulation hosted by Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And as Dr. Anthony Fauci, director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, has repeatedly stated, a disease like COVID-19 is the thing that's kept him up at night. In late March, Fauci said that a second wave of COVID-19 could emerge in the fall of 2020, but that the U.S. would be much
1: better prepared to face it. I think that disease outbreaks, even zoonotic outbreaks, the spillover of pathogens, new pathogens from animals to us, is probably something that we can't stop altogether. What we can do is stop those events turning into global health crises of the kinds we're confronting right now. Um, And in order to do that, we need to have better surveillance at that uh, animal-human interface we need to invest in um, uh, more robust health infrastructure all over the world because, as we're seeing yet again, um, we're only as safe, safe as our least safe place. So we need to invest in health infrastructure in the poorest countries as well as the richest. Um, we are doing better. We we do learn from each, you know, each catastrophe. I think each disaster. Um, Uh, There was a a new ranking that was uh, uh, released last October by um, uh, Johns Hopkins, I think, uh, and various other organizations whose names I've forgotten, called the Global Global Health Security Index. And that's very interesting because it ranks countries on their pandemic preparedness along various different dimensions. And um, so now we can see where each country's weakness is when it comes to preparing for pandemics. Um, No country is perfect, but for example, China is, which is very strong on many things, um, detecting and responding um, to new pandemic threats, for example, it is not strong on prevention and particularly um, in the food security area. So clearly now China needs to invest more in that, it perhaps didn't act fast enough after the SARS outbreak um, to regulate the so-called wet markets, the live markets and animals um, from where this uh, new pathogen seems to have sprung. Um, but these are things that take time to do. So after SARS, the Chinese government and live markets and it didn't work they just went underground and and became black markets Um, and it's a very big part of uh chinese culture and in some parts of china up to 60 people rely on those markets for up to 60 percent of their food so it's not something that can be banished in one fell swoop it's something that needs to be regulated in an evidence-based way and um, subjected to much more rigorous surveillance and if that's one lesson we take away from this pandemic then um, then that would be very good. You've been
0: listening to Laura Spinney, science journalist and author of Pale Rider, the Spanish flu of 1918 and how it changed the world. Spinney's comments originally came from an interview with radio producer Sasha Lilly at KPFA-FM. The Making Contact team is executive director Lisa Rudman, producers Anita Johnson, Salima Hamarani, and Monica Lopez. Associate Producer Aisha Chowdhury. Audience Engagement Manager Catherine Steyer. And I'm this week's host, Monica Lopez. Thanks for listening to Making Contact.